I was feeling a little bit weary tonight. So I thought before I came in here, I should write down what I really wanted to get, what point I really wanted to get across, just so that I didn't start meandering here and there. And as in the process of sitting with what was really moving me, what was really motivating me, uh, it all seemed to center on a couple quotes that started floating through my mind that are really reminders of the deep um, sense of of what Thich Nhat Hanh calls interbeing, that we inter-are with each other, we inter-are with everything. And I know this has been mentioned, and you've probably had a little bit of a taste of this as you've gone through the retreat about the importance of somehow seeing through the the imprisoning illusion of separateness. That that really motivates me because I know that, that the more I am caught in the feeling of myself as separate, apart from the flow of life, my actions will often reinforce the feeling that's often spoken about in the Bhagavad Gita, that I'm the, I'm a wave, I'm the one wave on the ocean that's somehow gotten separated from the ocean. And so easily forget that the wave is never separate from the ocean. That all of us, in our heart of hearts, one way of talking about it, all of us are immersed in the very thing that, we are, that we've been looking for. And all of our wandering, all of, uh, and I, when I use the word wandering, the word in the Pali or Sanskrit that's used is samsara, endless wandering, endlessly waiting for a future that never arrives, overlooking the reality that time is always now. And this, this endless search that only takes place in our mind only takes place in our thoughts, um, deprives us of the available um, deep sense of connection, interbeing, and then deprives us of the availability um, that we have to be of support to each other. Um, so I thought about that, and I've and the. The, the passages that were going through my mind were from, one was from Kalu Rinpoche, one of the great Tibetan masters of the last century. I got to meet him. I went to a public talk, but I was just spellbound by the, his luminosity and his the empty quality, this, the complete availability. There was, like, there was no, no interference you know, it was the lights were on so brightly, but nobody seemed to be home. <laughs> In the best way that you could say that. <laughs> you know, I had another teacher. <laughs> and this is instructive, I think. It's a little aside. I had another teacher who also seemed very, very uh, what we call empty. It seemed like there was a kind of vacancy, but it didn't have that 
I said, if that's what it looks like, I don't want it. It just seemed so, didn't seem like there was heart. It didn't seem like there was, what I see is the, is the natural expression of a mind that's free of its preoccupations. It's love. And I know, and I have a feeling, I have a feeling, and I have some confidence that as you've settled in here, as you've dropped in a little bit and had some gaps between your last thought and your next, your mind has opened, but also your heart's probably a lot more tender. And I know that what I've seen over the course of many years is after several days, there's a, there's a kind of uh, opening of the heart and people will surreptitiously leave flowers on other people's cushions or there'll be these little gestures of kindness. You know, of course, in, that, in the cycle of, of that settling, there's hating everyone on the retreat. And the, we have, you know, Tara mentioned the first night about the Vipassana romance, which is another way... It, we get into this little narrow view. We, our mind, we, you know, get touched by someone who produces in us a pleasant feeling, and we like that feeling. And then, and then, because we're not so mindful, that liking turns into wanting, and then the pressure of all that just sends, creates this proliferation of thoughts. And then we're we've, we're dating and mating and marrying and divorcing and. <laughs> And not going anywhere, <laughs> nothing's happened, but our mind has gone on this journey, and it's so narrow. And the and the trance of it is that that person is the secret to happiness, just like the bell when we're waiting for the bell to ring. But the same, the reverse is true in cycles of practice, where there's what's called the vipassana vendetta, <laughs> where somebody triggers an unpleasant feeling and. Some not liking, and not liking turns into aversion and hate, and the the strategy of how, the, or the the case for the prosecution, why that person's ruining your retreat. It's amazing how somebody coming in the door late could have anything to do with me, but somehow it becomes very, very personal. But in these little ways, but done over and over, our mind becomes very narrow, and so it's. Uh, it's easy to forget that we are, as one of my teachers put it, we're neck deep in grace. That we are, we are actually, um, we have access to um, what I described this morning and another teacher described as a, a natural peace and ease that really is the natural peace and ease of our nature. That we start to get a little sense of and part of the expression of that more presentness, that peacefulness, is, is um, a feeling of connection. And even now as I speak to you, I know that, that I'm, I'm an individual and I'm manifesting in this particular role right now. But when, when I stop thinking about that for a moment and you stop thinking about your role for a moment, and you're just here with me, we're just here together. 
and we don't give rise to a thought for a moment, really hard to find a dividing line between us. We almost have to consult our memory. We have to go into history to be able to make a separation between us. So our practice allows us to begin to taste, not just theoretically, but taste this sense of non-separateness. And um, at the same time, not um, ever denying our unique individuality. And that, I'll, I'm going to talk about these two things tonight. But the quotes that came to me while, before the talk were, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. This is Kala Rinpoche. You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. And when you understand this, you will see that you are nothing. And being, and being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Now that, that language may not resonate with you, but th- this may. It's from the teacher named um, Sri Nasargadat Maharaj, different tradition, but he says, love says I'm everything. Wisdom says I'm nothing. Between these two, my life flows. So as soon as I say the word nothing or nobody, it's very easy to start thinking, thinking, I don't, I'm not anyone, I don't exist, I'm not. It's missing the point of this. That our immediate experience is not reducible to a word, either something or nothing. We are not our direct experience is not capturable in language. The language of the Dharma, as has been said in different ways, is the language of immediate and direct experience. So you could read all the beautiful quotations that are meant to be fingers pointing to the moon, and you'd never see the moon if you get caught up in the words. You could read all the suttas, that's why Ajahn Sumedho, when that, I alluded to his quote, he says, uh, for people who are obsessed by conceptual mind and compulsive thinking, you reduce your practice down to two words, letting go. He says, rather than try to develop this and go into that and learn the sutras and study Abhidharma, that's Buddhist psychology, learn, study the Madhyamaka, the Prajnaparamita, the Hinayana, the Mahayana, Vajrayana, uh, become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism and being invited to international Buddhist conferences, just let go. And as I mentioned, for those who were in the room, he said, there's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. Well, how did I get off on that one? (laughs) (laughs) Um, so the language of the Dharma is a language of direct experience and you all the work that you've done over the course of the retreat why do we do it why do we want to see through the illusion of our own our own um, identities 
that feeling, that excessive feeling of separateness. Because seeing through that illusion allows us to see through the illusion of other, which is the source of so much of the polarization in this world, so much of the greed, so much of the hatred, is thinking that we exist independently from one another. And then having, viewing, viewing the so-called other as apart from, separate from, not understanding that, that each unique expression of life here is part of the same, is another wave on the same, in the same great ocean. Albert Einstein put it this way, a human being is part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. They experience themselves their thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of their consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole nature in its beauty. And Thich Nhat Hanh puts it this way, you and me, you are me and I am you. Isn't it obvious we enter our? You cultivate the flower in yourself so that I will be beautiful. I transform the garbage in myself so you will not have to suffer. I support you, you support me. I'm in this world to offer you peace. You are in this world to bring me joy. If only we could keep that motivation clear, awakening, it's called bodhicitta, awakening for the benefit of each other. Just put in a slightly more humorous way the poet David Budbill said in his poem entitled Bugs in a Bowl. Han Shan, the great and crazy, wonder-filled Chinese poet of a thousand years ago said, we're all just like bugs in a bowl, all day going around never leaving their bowl. I say, that's right, every day climbing up the steep sides, sliding back, over and over again, around and around, up and back down. Sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself. Or look around, see your fellow bugs, walk around, say, hey, how you doing? Say, Nice bowl. (laughs) So I couldn't, I couldn't speak this way with a lot of confidence uh, tonight had I not experienced 
with you what happens when we've all settled in together. Um, Because you you all have some sense now of that non-historical direct experience of yourself. And maybe even are just dwelling in that right this moment. Not the historical version of you, which is I'll talk about as well, but the immediate one. And the effect of having marinated over these days, as one, as the poet Hafez says, you look so much brighter. I'll read a poem that he says, and it speaks to the topic of this illusion of separateness. It says, I know that the voice of depression still calls to you. I know those habits that can ruin your life still send their invitations, but you are with the friend now. And I like to interpret the friend as you are in touch with that in you which is aware and awake. The unconditioned nature of your mind, just capacity to be what we are nearer than our breath is awake. Try not to be right now. So you're with the friend now. You could call it mindfulness too. And you look so much stronger. You can stay that way and even bloom. Keep squeezing drops of the sun from your prayers and work and music and from your companions' beautiful laughter. Keep squeezing the drops of the sun from the sacred hands and glance of your beloved and, my dear, from the most insignificant movements of your own holy body. What we've been inviting you to do over the course of this retreat is, is meet, is bring the light of attention to the most insignificant movements movements of this holy body. It says, learn to recognize the counterfeit coins. This is a key. Learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. (laughs) You are with the friend now. Learn what actions of yours delight her, what actions of yours bring freedom and love. I'll skip a little bit. It it ends by saying, Oh, keep squeezing drops of the sun from your prayers and work and music and from your companions' beautiful laughter and from the most insignificant movements of your own holy body. Now, sweet ones, be wise. Cast all your votes for dancing. So learning to recognize the counterfeit coins that buy you a moment of pleasure but then drag you. I don't need to repeat the whole thing. And we could talk about the counterfeit coins being what was spoken about with the hindrances and what I spoke about the first night about the misplaced faith that we put in 
in momentary sense pleasures, how they, how they may deliver us a lot of pleasure, but they leave in their wake a feeling of dissatisfaction and the desire for more. And that puts, keeps sending us, if we don't pay attention to it, sends us on a wheel of, of endless searching for that one pleasure that will satisfy us, and it, we just keep getting more and more dissatisfied. But what I'm pointing to tonight as the counterfeit coin is the, is the mistaken perception or the mistaken identity um, that we have with our body, our moods, thoughts, and just generally the view, the version of ourselves that plays through our mind. A version of ourselves of someone who approximates you and me, approximates us, it's about some individual, but it's a version of somebody that doesn't really exist. It's an imaginary you, the version in your mind. Could never capture the, the non-historical you that's sitting here. That's much more difficult to put in words. And if I'm mistakenly believe that the version of myself is, that plays through my mind is me, then I'm, I'm literally um, dragged for days on end, for lifetimes, missing, overlooking the capacity that I have, capacity you have, for peace and ease, for a feeling of contentment, feeling of being home. One teacher, that same teacher, Nisargadat, says, nothing can make you happier than you are, naturally. He says, all search for happiness is misery. The only happiness worth that name is the natural happiness of being awake, conscious. So you're with the friend now, you're conscious. And Susie last night said, don't go back to sleep, from Rumi, right? Was it Rumi? Don't go back to sleep. You're with the friend now. And I couldn't help but think of this story that I read in a, a book from a teacher named Anthony DeMello on awareness, a really wonderful teacher. He told the story of, a, of, of something he saw on Spanish TV about a fellow named Jaime. And Jaime's father knocked on his son's door one day and says, Jaime, get up, wake up. It's time to go to school. And he kept knocking on his door and Jaime wasn't responding. He said, wake up, wake up. You've got to go to school. And finally, Jaime responded and says, I don't want to go to school. And his father said, why don't you want to go to school? He says, I don't like school. It's dull, and the kids tease me. 
And his father then said to him, I'll give you three reasons why you have to go to school. It's your duty. You're 45 years old. And you're the headmaster. Wake up. Wake up. So now that you maybe realize a little bit more that you are the headmaster, you had maybe a taste of not being limited by your historical version of yourself. You may sound as I'm speaking right now that the historical version of yourself, there's something wrong with it. It's a beautiful thing, and I want to elaborate on that in a little while. But when you touch into the reality that you are, and you step out of illusion and the appearance of things, you taste life directly, you can maybe understand the words of Thich Nhat Hanh where he says, you who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living. He says, stop being the destitute child. Come home. Reclaim your heritage. So notice, if you... If, if you're, if you're immediately pulled to the historical sense of yourself, just notice after your last thought has ceased and before the next one arises. So if for a moment you don't consult your memory, what is your experience? If you don't look back and you don't look ahead, and you're just here. Anybody willing to say? I did this the other night a little bit differently, but what is your experience on present evidence after your last thought has ceased and before the next one arises? Freedom. Anybody else? I couldn't hear that. Sweetness? Oh. Effortlessness. Couldn't hear that one. Silly? Chilly. Chilling, chilling. Oh, cool. <laughs> Sorry. See, you. should make a new a new dictionary with the words the way they sound through the mask. <laughs> you notice how after the last notion of ourselves has passed and before the next one, not a lot of evidence for. I'm not enough. I'm too much. 
something's wrong, something's wrong with me, that these views of self, the, the Buddha called not really myself, but a view, an idea called Sakya Ditti, Sakaya Ditti. But without that, free of those views of self, what do you experience? It's all chilling. <laughs> There's a, a sutra from the Mahayana school, which is the, as Buddhism moved into, into um, other parts of Asia from India, the Mahayana schools unfolded and there's a, a sutra called the Avatamsaka Sutra. Avatamsaka Sutra. And the heart of it, it is the line, having no view of self, one is always peaceful. But somehow there is a, a thought that if, if I am free of the story of myself, the idea of myself, that somehow I'll disappear. I'll just vanish into thin air. And that's terrifying. But notice when that last thought has ceased before the next one arises. We're just here. I see all of you in just beautiful, beautiful, individual expressions of life. Perfectly unique. Yet, of course, we have many things in common, but a perfectly unique expression of life that on present evidence is without without limitation. As that passage from Gendon Rinpoche, nothing missing. And I know that 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 what I'm seeing here, what we feel with each other on present time evidence, is different than the version that plays in our mind. And it's really important in our practice. Part of the practice is to awaken to what is, what is really natural to us, but it's also to awaken. It's also to make a shift from being carried along by that version of self, that sakaya ditti, that view of self that plays in our mind, that shift from being carried along by that to just recognizing it, recognizing its usefulness, its inevitability, based on everything that has happened to us. I have a great story of myself. I'm a legend in my own mind. (laughs) Our stories are painful, extraordinary, interesting, 
meaningful. They, they really help us. They help, help us understand how we came to be here. But they're of the past. And they often obscure this indescribable present. We deny our stories, overlook our stories, overlook all the, that narrative in my mind at our own peril. We have to respect it. Can't bypass it. The, the streams that run through me, you know, some of you were on the last retreat and I talked about this, but part of my story, historical me, is that I, I'm... Um, wow, where do I begin? What I talked about on the last retreat is that, that part of my identity view is that I'm Jewish. And there have been part times in my life where that particular view of myself was not, not something that showed up that much. But in more recent years, and those who are not Jewish may not understand this or don't have that as part of their story, but um, there is an enormous proliferation right now of anti-Semitism. And it's coming from people on what we call, and it's, it's simplistic, but we call the left, where I, am, I have been cast, someone like me, is cast in the view as um, too white and part of white supremacy. Part of, the, part of the privileged, which is relatively true in terms of privilege, the privilege of my skin color. But I'm too white on, from one vantage point. And on the, on the right side, I'm not white enough. And I'm, I'm actually other. And the way that's manifesting is, uh, and I know I'm not alone when I speak of this, it's manifesting as a, as a, um, a very frightening, um, not so, I don't feel so frightened, but I know that that, that, that um, I carry the, the ancestral sense of unsafety, having been part of a, a Jewish diaspora. The Jews have never felt safe in the world. Now you wouldn't know that on present evidence. But yet it's useful to know that story. My grandmother's village is, was destroyed in Russia as the pogroms took place and they basically burned down most villages and everybody ran. And that's just been repeated over and over in the history of the world. So we all carry those streams of distress in some way or another. And I'm, you can see I'm part of my story as I function in this role of teacher. So I have some practice history and the, the guru. <laughs> Hakim calls me Hitman Howie. OG. <laughs> and my friend Bonnie Durant calls me the sage on the stage. 
But I also know that story, and this is where the limitations of the story. I'm not completely defined by my ancestry. There's no ancestry on present evidence. My ancestry, believe it or not, is an insult to what I am really and what you are really. It could never capture the depth and breadth of our our nature. It's a part. And clearly, this sage on the stage thing, I, I talk about this on most retreats, it lasts as long as I, um, until my next call home or when I go home where nobody wants a guru. <laughs> and getting my daughter to even say good morning. She's very sweet, but she's 18 and in her own, on, we call it Planet Molly. But believe it or not, since I'm mentioning Molly, she's the one that really attuned me to the difference between the immediate expression of life that each of us is and the view of ourselves that plays in our mind. When she was three years old, here's this creature with these little ringlet curls who's emerged from life through no fault of her own with all these non-separate non-personal causes, just like me and whatever happened to me, it's where do I stop and all those influences begin? Or where do those influences stop and I begin? It's part of a net that goes back to beginningless time. But here it is, here's Molly, three years old, these little ringlet curls, and we take her to nursery school for the first time. And she is so quintessentially Molly. And we're just in awe of the unique, how she's just emerged. And she's, you know, she's manifesting. And she goes to nursery school. And at nursery school, through just by circumstance, there are uh, twin girls who have these straight, blonde toehead, you know, blonde hair. And... That evening, we notice Molly standing in front of the mirror, pulling on her hair. Already what's emerging is, is the identity of Molly who's somehow not right. Who's beginning the process that insidious and absolutely useless and um, useless in most cases harmful process of comparing what the Buddha called conceit. The tendency of, in our mind, in our view of ourselves, to put ourselves above, put ourselves below, or put ourselves equal to someone else. Now, what is your mind like when you're not comparing? When you're not thinking of yourself as better than, less than, or equal to? But what happens when you're less than? And look at the effect of that. There's no end to the 
the wandering of trying to be okay when, we've, when we have landed in the view of ourself as less than. And there's obviously no rest in the view of ourselves as better than. And there's no rest in the view of ourselves as equal to. Because then we're still measuring. That's why I, one of my favorite poems from Rumi, he says, live in the nowhere where you came from. Even though you have an address here. He says, you have eyes that see from that nowhere and you have eyes that judge distances. You own two shops. Wait, let me go back again. Live in the nowhere where you came from, even though you have an address here. You have eyes that see from nowhere and you have eyes that judge distances, how high, how low. You own two shops and you keep running back and forth. He says, try to close the one that's a fearful trap, always getting smaller. Checkmate this, checkmate that. I say, try to notice the one that's a fearful trap. The beauty of our practice is we can see the difference between what's here and the version of ourselves that's playing in our mind, the comparing mind. And I've relied a lot for humor from the words of James J. Audubon, who said, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, believe the bird. (laughs) Notice what it's like after your last comparison has ceased and before the next one comes. What is your experience? A teacher named Byron Katie says, there is no story that is you or that leads to you. Every story leads away from you. You are what exists before all stories. You are what remains when the story is understood. So a lot of our practice is be able to notice that a view of self is not self. And if it's recognized as not self, as not really something that can define us, even this, even whatever rich story, even whatever rich identity you have, whatever accomplishment, whatever role, whatever, whatever uh, harm you felt, it is a, it is it is important that we respect it and honor it and, and heal from whatever, whatever reinforces the feeling that something is wrong. But it's important to recognize that this does not, no identity, no role, no success, no failure, no gain, no loss, no praise, no blame, none of it 
can define you. That's why the, a very central teaching in the, in, the Buddha's, in the Buddha's teaching is about the eight worldly winds that blow through everybody's life. I just alluded to them just now. Every person experiences praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and shame, pleasure and pain. If you don't have all eight of those, you're not one of us. And if you become identified with praise, you're cheated. Identified with gain, identified with pleasure, identified with fame. Unreliable. So part of the process of, of meditation is to train our attention to get used to ourselves in a non-historical way, to touch into direct experience. The other half of our practice is to put to good use all of the um, all of the views of ourselves that um, that we have mistakenly taken to be the absolute truth about ourselves. And when I say put them to good use, turn them into the, the food of awakening. To be able to recognize, to make that shift from being caught in a comparison to knowing, oh, this is the comparing mind. Caught in being feeling inflated to noticing, oh, there's pride. caught in feeling like something's wrong with us, to knowing this is a view. A view of myself is not myself. But to, again, back and forth, to awaken to what you experience, to be able to accommodate, to be able to luxuriate in this capacity that you have for peace and ease, now we had to do a lot of a lot of hard labor here to be able to settle in because habitually we have been our minds unrecognized untrained have been running from silence but you're with the friend now you know where to find peace you you can know that you don't have to lift out of this instant to come home to yourself this is what happened to the buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree. And what did he say the moment he woke up? He said, through many births, and when you think of it right now, just for the purpose of our conversation, when you think of births, every time you give rise to an idea about yourself that you have, and this is a story, that you have come from the past this is part of your story. You've come from the past. You're passing through here on your way to the future. That's a story. Like I said the, the first night, you've really never left here. 
you, we think of ourselves as having come from the past, passing through on the way to the future. And each time we think of ourselves, we're literally born into that view of ourselves going through time. It's a useful way of thinking and talking and all of that, because we've had past present moments, and so so we, we, but we tend to construct this idea of past and construct this idea of future and then turn the, par- the present, unfortunately, the only place we actually live, into a pass-through. A place to get through on our way to something better. That's delusion. This is really all we have. associating our happiness with a future that never arrives. So each time we're born into that, and then if I really think that I'm, my well-being it depends on going somewhere in time to be happy, this may take an extra five minutes. I have to... Are you okay with that? Every time I'm born into that, then I have to kind of live that out. I have to keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. And, and Tara said, I, I put myself into that, that sense of suspended well-being. I'll be able to relax when I get there, when I, my mind quiets down, when, my, when I get enlightened, when I get what I want, when I get rid of what my neighbor... <laughs> when I, it's not the neighbor, believe me. It's our own mind. And even somebody came to the Buddha, a, a deva, who could just zoom through time, or zoom through, it could walk very fast, and said to the Buddha, you know, and, and in another lifetime, I could just walk, I was, my name was Rohitasa, and I could walk so fast, and I tried to reach the end of the world, the, I tried to reach the end of suffering by walking, by going. And after 115 years or so, I died <laughs> trying. And here I am, reborn again. And I'm, here I am in the presence of the historical Buddha. And I'm saying, Lord Buddha, I did this in such and such a life. Is it possible to reach the end of the world by going? And the Buddha said, no. He says, but only those who reach the end of the world become liberated. But then he, this is what he said. He said, within this fathom-long body, with its senses and perceptions, lies the world. And lies the cause of the world. The way that we react to the experiences that come through the senses. Our mind creates this, this world of our imagination. But it's also within this fathom-long body that we find the end of the world. And within this fathom-long body, with its senses and perceptions, we find the path leading to the end of the world. So the Buddha, after having realized that, he sat down, woke up, and then he said, through many births, over and over again, going, through many births, in the wandering on, I ran, seeking but not finding the maker of this house, the house of me that's going through time. O oh, house builder, you've been seen. You, sh- you sh- shall not build a house again. And the way I look at that is you, 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 you can't build this house again and 
I won't fall, I won't fall for Mara. I won't fall for the, this view that, that I have to wait to be well and happy. He says, you shall not build another house again. Your rafters are broken. And that's the defilements of mind I've seen through them. The ridgepole destroyed. That's ignorance, confusion, looking for love in all the wrong places. My mind gone to the unconditioned, to this craving for becoming, it's fate, that's faded away. I'm finally here. So each time we notice our mind jumping ahead or jumping back or creating a view of ourselves, enjoy it. Don't make it wrong. It has a lot of habit strength. It's part of everyone's humanity, this self-view, this self-idea. But this self-idea is not really self. It's just an idea. A useful and functional one. But don't let it, don't let it um, deprive you of, of what's even more fundamental and natural. Which is the immediate the non-historical, direct experience of yourself here and now, minus the words. End with a brief poem from Derek Walcott called Love After Love. The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving in your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread. Give back your heart to itself to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. May we all see through the illusion of a separate self. May we all see through the illusion of other. May we all together be liberated.
Thank you for your attention. Just a reminder that um, we have about 22 minutes until the sitting, and we'll just add, we'll start the sitting at five minutes after, since we went over, give you time to do some walking. Also, you will find, and hopefully, maybe you'll ignore it for the evening, but there is a table right now that was just, uh, that will be uncovered, that will include some uh, email lists and include a book that I wrote and some other uh, spirit rock related things that um, I'm hoping that you will, if you do stop by those tables, if you do engage in that, that you don't, you do it as part of the continuity of your practice and that you don't uh, just get caught up in the frenzy of it because that's one of the ways that we lose contact with this natural great peace. So enjoy, but um, make it part of your practice. And we'll see you in about 25 minutes. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.